at the levels of tax that we've got now, the deadweight loss from an additional dollar of tax, it's material. It's something between 20 and 50%. Just to break even, the return on the subsidy, subsidy has to be 25%. So you, 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 you've got to have an amazing rate of return on the investment just to offset the deadweight loss from the taxation. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, what's wrong with subsidies? The Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS Act have reignited a subsidies war between the US and Europe. There's particular concerns in this battle that the UK is falling behind in an effort to ensure an active industrial policy that delivers economic growth. To discuss whether the UK should indeed follow the US and the EU, I'm very excited to be joined by uh, um, the IEA's senior research fellow, Dr. Jamie White. Jamie's a former politician in New Zealand, he's a former IEA research director, and most recently the author of the IEA paper, Taking Liberties, Why Post-Liberals Are Wrong About Personal Freedom. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. It's good. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. So these, these phrases are thrown around quite a lot these days, but I want to keen to get back to kind of some definitions here. Like, what is industrial policy? What are these subsidies? Well, industrial policy is aimed at promoting certain... They usually talk about sectors rather than individual companies. Um, you can't actually do it without giving the subsidy to individual companies, but the goal is usually to promote um, some sector, which means promoting the production of what is produced in that sector. So... It might be agriculture, uh, it might be uh, computer chips, whatever. And it works by uh, subsidising the companies, which means, I mean, it's, it's important to be frank about what, I mean, clear about what's involved. A lot of people talk about subsidies as if the money comes from nowhere. What happens is the government taxes people on threat of imprisonment, as always, and directs the money to usually commercial enterprises and profit-seeking companies. Um, so that's how it works. Um, we can probably talk about whether it's a good idea or well, not, indeed. but that, that's what it actually is. I mean, before we get into some of the standard points, there seems to be uh, certainly politically growing popularity of subsidies. We've seen this in the US case, in the EU case. That it feels like a real reversal because there was a period where the idea of subsidising the industry became relatively less popular, maybe didn't mm -hmm. disappear, and now it's come back, and it's only come back on the traditional left side of, of politics, where you think that, that we might support instinctively a more interventionist state, but in, in certain more kind of conservative circles as well. What do you think is driving this? Well, I think that the resurgence of it on the right comes really around um, geopolitical concerns, right? There's been no revision of their economic theories um, that that count against subsidies. More, it's a matter of saying, well, you've got the Chinese who we don't, we're suspicious of, and they are producing some important components of production, such as computer chips and so on, and, uh, and, and various other kinds of information technology, and we don't want to be in any way um, reliant on them, and so we must promote uh, production in our own countries. I think that's the basis of it on the right. Um, Do you not see as well that, uh, at least amongst some, some segments, particularly amongst the kind of American national conservatives, 
they they also make a, I suppose more more class based argument about industrial policy. I don't know whether you've you've seen this. Oh. The, the JD Vance's of the world who talk about <sighs> left behind industrial mm -hmm. areas and the government needs to yeah. or, or Trump for example. He obviously makes an argument about China, but I think he also makes an argument about um, the the need to ensure jobs and absolutely. So there's this this idea that I mean the politicians are always wanting what used the the good jobs of the past so they get themselves in very peculiar positions where they they really like coal mining and things like that. whereas coal mining is a horrible job <laughs> but anyway they and so industrial production factory jobs you know the, there was a period when car workers in the united states earned a lot of money uh, you know for, for semi-skilled laborers and they they pine after those days again and that makes them hostile to what you might call a global labor market um, so they want to, yes, that's quite right. That is another motivation for it. I'm, I'm also interested here, um, often when you look at the US, there's, there, there's obviously has been a reduction in, in jobs in uh, manufacturing, but the manufacturing sector hasn't actually declined that much. No, of course, because a lot of what's going on in terms of the reduction of jobs is not, not really to do with trade at all, it's to do with technology. Mm. Uh, in trade, th there are some very good papers written by free market economists explaining why trade and technology are more or less the same thing. So. I don't know if you've seen these, they're, they're fun. So the, the way it goes, I, I think it was actually the original idea is due to David Friedman, but he says, um, imagine this new technology. You get um, a whole lot of wheat and you put it on a ship and you wait and then the ship comes back and it's got cars on it. This is amazing technology for <laughs> making cars. Uh, so what's really happening, of course, is you're sending it to Japan, the wheat to Japan, they, they buy the wheat and they sell you the cars. And that's just the same as having a car making, a, a ship that makes cars out of wheat. It's really the same thing. And if you can reduce the cost of production by trade or by technology, it has the same effect. And of course, it always involves losing jobs because reducing the amount of labor that goes into the production of something is the goal, right? We want that. Yeah. That frees up the labor to be put to other uses. It means that everybody's, the amount of stuff we've got in relation to the amount of work that we do goes up. And that's, that's what it is to be better off. And we can make ourselves better off using technology or trade. And governments shouldn't try to get in the way of it and stop it. I mean, there are some specific arguments around security and so on, where the arguments aren't so clear. But in general, there's a very powerful case for not impeding either trade or, um, or take the use of technology. So that, let's get into what happens or what's wrong with subsidies. Uh, where, where does your objection to the idea of the, the kind of new call for subsidies come from? Right, well, I have, there are several reasons subsidies are a bad idea. And the, the main reason is that it involves investment decisions. I'm going to take the case where the capital is directed towards them. It doesn't really make that much difference. If the government pays, subsidises the price of the thing when it's you know, gives money to the company to sell it at a lower price, the company can retain the earnings and invest it there. It has the same effect. Capital ends up being directed to the subsidised industry. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Well, number one, the subsidy is raised from taxation, right? Now, taxation is always left out of public discussion of these matters. Taxes impose a deadweight loss on society. So when you tax some activity, such as earning an income or selling goods or capital gains on or interest on deposits, you get less of the thing that's taxed. Right? And that all sorts of otherwise productive activities that would have happened don't happen. 
put a tax on workers, you get less work, put a tax on investment, you get less investment. Yeah, to put it very straightforwardly, yeah, that's how it works. Uh, the people, no, I won't go into the details, it's not worth it, but it, th this is standard economics. Nobody, yeah. nobody really I does think sometimes this. you want to do that, right? Like sometimes tax it, is necessary it, and good. Absolutely, and... it can be worth it, but you've got to acknowledge that it has a deadweight loss. So now at the kind of rates, the deadweight loss increases as tax rates go up. So the marginal cost of, to society of gathering another dollar in tax goes up as the higher taxes are. We have high, very high taxation already. At the levels of tax that we've got now, the deadweight loss from an additional dollar of tax, it's it's very hard to know what, what it is exactly, but it's material. It's something between 20 and 50%. Mm. So transferring a dollar from the private sector to the government reduces total output by 20, 25 cents, yeah. let's say, right? Okay. So just to break even, the return on the subsidy, subsidy has to be 25%. So you, 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 you've got to have an amazing rate of return mm. on the investment just to offset the deadweight loss from the taxation. So it's, it's almost, that alone is almost enough to make it a, a crazy policy. Then, the more, probably in the more profound point, though, is that normal investment is people investing their own money in search of profits, right? And so they're taking a risk, and they've got to be serious about whether or not it's a good use of the money, because if it isn't, they bear the, the cost of it. Politicians aren't investing their own money. They're investing other people's money. And what politicians... Politicians have no claim on the profits. So what are they seeking? Well, you know, we can say, oh, they're seeking the public good, they're wonderful people. Really what they're seeking, of course, is votes. These are vote... Politicians are vote seekers. Private investors are profit seekers. Politicians are vote seekers. So they're deploying this money for the sake of winning votes. And how will they be inclined to deploy the money? N not to the best investment. Well, the best investment from their point of view is one that, as I said, gets votes. That means, let's say, I'll want to invest in a marginal constituency. Um, I mean, every, the red wall, right? And we have levelling up in Britain. Mm. Why do politicians, why do the Tories like levelling up? Because it's an excuse to funnel money to marginal constituencies and buy votes from doing so. This goes on all the time. Uh, in the United States, there was a nice study done. When a congressman gets on a federal spending committee, the average increase in federal government spending in that congressman's district is 50%, increase of 50%. They just use their position on a spending, federal spending committee to buy votes in their district. So you get the political allocation of capital rather than the commercial uh, allocation, and it's inclined to be wasteful. Um, now, not a, so, and, and I think it's corrupting. Of course, the politicians are inherently corrupted by this. But it's even worse because the business people become corrupted as well. Suppose the government says, I'm, we're, we're about to start you know, giving taxpayers money to businesses that we've decided should get it. What are business people going to do? They're going to start inviting politicians to dinners. They're going to start going to summits. Mm. They're going to start thinking, how could I pitch my business so that politicians you, will you like what, it? You get what some people call subsidy entrepreneurs, rather than yeah. productive entrepreneurs creating um, uh, good opportunities and, and innovating. You, you, you get these people whose main skill might be talking to politicians. Without, exactly. Without subsidies in the economy, you've got two problems as, a, as an entrepreneur. You've got to think of something that customers want. And you've got to convince investors that you've got that right. And because both parties, the investors and the customers, 
part with their money willingly. They don't, you can't make them. Mm. So you've got to really attend to the preferences of, of people in society. Politicians don't. They can confiscate the money on threat of imprisonment and then just hand it out to whomever they like. And so, as you say, the, the entrepreneurs start thinking not about the customers. They start thinking about the politicians. The real customers are the politicians. So I start pandering to their preferences and it and you, corrupts think, the, whole, the whole business world. Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me uh, attending um, Conservative Party conference in recent years, just the amount of businesses that will have a, a conference panel on the topic of levelling up. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly that, that maybe some of the business people are, are genuine and real in their in their beliefs, but I suspect a lot of what's going on there is they say the government's talking about leveling up. Mm -hmm. They want to join themselves onto that agenda so that they get whatever um, kind of policy benefit that could come out of that. Everybody's green nowadays, right? Every business is green. That too, yeah. Uh, you know, because they know that's all this money is being funneled at green projects. Um, so what then kind of is, I suppose, some historical examples of subsidies? I think the, the British state, it's not like this is a new phenomenon. The, the British state spent much of the, the post-war era trying to subsidise various industrial projects and computer systems to compete with IBM and aeroplanes like the mm -hmm. Concorde that ended up mm -hmm. costing hundreds of million and then didn't have a particularly good outcome well, in the end. Yeah, and of course the British government up until the deep into the 70s, owned a lot of businesses. I mean, they were producing cars and so on. The Leyland cars, yes. terrible bloody cars. <laughs> um, I'll give you a nice example that comes from my native New Zealand. Uh, up until 1984, there were agricultural subsidies, and in particular, you won't be surprised to hear, sheep. So if you were, <laughs> if you, uh, were a sheep farmer, you got uh, a certain amount of money from the government per sheep. Um, and it was there were some nice comedy uh, sketches about this with inspectors coming to the farm and farmers getting the same sheep and moving them from paddock <laughs> to paddock so that when they counted them there were much more uh, they counted more sheep than there really were but the result of this policy was that there were when I was a boy in New Zealand there were um, 80 million sheep and 3 million people <laughs> now uh, the new government that came in 1984 and liberalized the economy got rid of these subsidies and the effects were very interesting so what had the sheep population declined from 80 million to 50 million, as you'd expect. The weight of meat being exported didn't decline at all. And that's because if you own a sheep and you get paid per sheep, you don't care how, how much you fatten them up. In fact, you don't want to fatten them up because that's expensive. You have to you know, feed them. Uh, when your subsidy goes, now you've got, you want to maximise the value of the sheep, which is your asset, and so you want to fatten it up. So the actual lamb output didn't decline. But more importantly, and this gets us to the really important point about subsidies, what happened is that as the sheep population declined, sheep, farmers had been farming sheep on land that wasn't suitable for it because, again, they don't care. They get paid just to have the Not sheep. Not great for the environment there, now, is it? wasn't great for the environment, but it was they had this land and they were farming sheep on it. When... They reduced the sheep population because the subsidy had gone away. They freed up some of the, the, the land that was a less good for farming sheep on. Turned out that a lot of that land was good for growing grapes on. And this was the beginning of the New Zealand wine industry. The New Zealand had a tiny wine production. After this change, wine took off. Now, who knew that the sheep subsidies were suppressing the wine industry? But that was their effect because the resources that were actually better used for wine production were being diverted into sheep production. And this is what you don't see with subsidies. This is why people often say, oh, subsidies are great. Look, we subsidise this and there's more of it. 
Well, yes, of course there's more of the thing you subsidise, but there's less of something else, right, because the resources are being diverted to that something. And almost certainly that something else would have been more valuable because if it hadn't been, the diversion to the subsidised thing wouldn't have been required. You've got to always ask yourself, the government says, well, these, this is good, this thing we're going to subsidise. If it's good, why isn't it already being produced? Mm. And they've got to come up with an answer. Why, why is there a market failure in this case? Um, I see all these advocates of subsidies. There was an article by Juliet Samuel in The Times the other day, very much in favour of subsidy. It didn't cross her mind to explain why markets don't direct the right amount of capital to these good, these good things. Um, and short of some argument, if the market's not doing it, short of some particular market failure, if the market's not doing it, it shouldn't happen. So the, the, the modern case, I guess, for subsidies um, tries to say maybe it accepts uh, some of those economic arguments about efficiency but says there, there might, maybe there's certain market failures or certain things that are not costed properly in mm -hmm. market transactions. So I can think about the environmental case for subsidising certain technology or technological development, mm -hmm. uh, the, the scientific case, maybe basic science research is underfunded and therefore that should be subsidised, or as you mentioned earlier, the, the security case. Are you... To what extent are you sympathetic to any of those well, arguments? I'm, you make an exemption I'm from quite the unsympathetic to them, uh, and for two reasons. One is that they're usually actually wrong, and I'll cut. So let's just dwell on that for a moment. Take uh, the agriculture, the, the environmental argument. So we want, let's say, a wind power, and we'll subsidise that. We'll subsidise the production of the turbines and all, the whole business. Why? Well, it's got a positive externality, is the argument. So it the the, a private producer of it doesn't capture all the benefits and therefore it's underproduced. That's the, the argument. But the problem is we're double counting because it's not really that wind turbines, that green energy has positive externality. It's that dirty forms of energy production have a negative externality. Now we have various mechanisms for handling that, such as cap and trade. You know, carbon taxes, yeah. Carbon taxes or the, the cap and trade system with carbon permits that are tradable. Once you've, so once you've dealt, you've internalised the negative externality, there's no need to subsidise the alternatives. They now just, they're competing on an, a level playing field because the, the external costs are being borne by the people doing the, the, you know, the dirty forms of production and there's no need to subsidise the other one. In fact, if you subsidise the other one as well as taxing this one, you're going to get an overproduction of of the alternative. Well, indeed, I think there's, a, there's an allocation problem here as well. And when I talk about environmental issues, it's what, why does the government know what the best technology is when it comes to, is it carbon capture storage, is it hydrogen, is it it's, solar, is it wind? Right. You, so, so the classic theory is you tax the negative externality yeah. and then you leave it to competition uh, to sort out the answer to the, that question. What's the best alternative? Now, the idea that governments know what... And here's my second part of the answer and it really relates to what I said before, if, you, if the government starts making particular decisions about you know, which forms of production it's going to back, people start queuing up and saying, oh, back me, back me, mm. and they take them to lunch and they hire hookers for them and they do all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And whoever's... As indeed was the case with Volkswagen <coughs> in, uh, in Germany, famously, where they, where they uh, I think, were various... This stuff is real. ...buying hookers, yeah. Right, well, take, whenever somebody gets to dispense the goodies like the Olympic Committee, for example, you know, 
they get wined and dined a FIFA, lot. FIFA, yeah. Yeah, FIFA. It's, it's, it's an invitation to corruption. Mm. Um, actually, there's a Catholic expression. I think it's called an occasion of sin or an occasion for sin. <laughs> Certain things, the minute you've set up the situation, there's going to be sin. Or another way you might put it is if you build a trough, pigs will turn up. Um, and those pigs may just be our, uh, <coughs> our entrepreneurial business people. I think there's probably a good distinction here as well that, that is um, often not made between being pro-business and being pro-market. Uh, yeah. the, the government at the moment talks a lot about science technology and being pro-business, but in that process, often hiding in there is an implicit kind of um, subsidy. Going through some of the other arguments, though, so the, the next one, which is used quite a lot, is uh, around science, basic science research. Um, Mazzucato, um, Mazzucato talks quite a lot in Entrepreneurial State about ARPANET, and she makes certain claims that the reason why you have your telephone today is because the government threw a lot of money at basic science research and therefore we need to be subsidizing these kind of technologies when it comes to the green economy or whatever else mm -hmm. and it's that basic science which markets will not provide well yeah i don't think that basic the telephones are basic science um i i'm increasingly skeptical that um i used to buy that argument to some extent and i believe that government subsidies of basic science might be justified in the grounds that they have positive externalities and otherwise wouldn't be done. I'm, I'm, some of these um, Californian tech firms are starting to make, to make me doubt that. <laughs> it's amazing the kind of research that they are willing to engage in on the hope that it will have some you know, practical yeah. or commercial value. At the, at the top tech companies in the US, when you, we combine the top five, the Amazon, Meta, Google, they spend almost twice as much each year on R&D than the entire UK economy, Yeah, no, which, is, which is crazy stuff. They're, they're yeah, billions and, and billions. And think about it. We've agreed that R&D has some positive externalities. Everybody gets the benefit of that. I mean, that's a gift to humanity, mm. what they're doing there. Now, the, the, so one thing that people always get wrong with the externalities is they don't think about inframargin, whether they're inframarginal or not. Now, that's a very annoying expression. I'll explain what that means. For viewers, um, something can have positive externalities, but the private incentives to buy it suffice to su to supply enough of it that all the ex positive externalities are delivered by that quantity. That the reason it's called inframarginal is that at the margin of what is privately produced, there are no more positive externalities. So yes, there are positive externalities but they're produced inside the margin of what the private sector produces anyway. So education is a nice example of this. Yes, education has positive externalities. If people get educated, they're less likely to commit crimes, they're better company at the pub. There's all sorts of positive externalities. But the incentives for a private individual to get educated are sufficiently good that, that they'll do it, right? So what we're seeing now is that these tech firms, their private incentives to do basic research suffice to do a lot of basic research from which we all get the benefits. So <clears throat> I'm not inclined, I, I'm skeptical about that argument. I'm particularly skeptical about it in when there's a very clear opportunity to free ride on what other people do. So this is more clear in New Zealand. Occasionally in New Zealand, the government says, oh, we don't do enough R&D in New Zealand. The government should subsidize R&D. So really? Can't we just piggyback off? Well, that's what, actually what I think about some of the, the subsidies from, from what the US is doing at the moment, or even mm -hmm. the EU. Ultimately, if they choose to subsidise their domestic industry, and this is another argument that's used, well, 
I might not like subsidies, but British industry will struggle because the EU and US is doing it. That's actually a direct handout to British, the British people. If they subsidise a car manufactured in the US and send it to the UK, the beneficiary of that is the British consumer. Yeah, and, and British industries because British consumers now have more money left over to buy, spend on other stuff. And so provided you're not a car manufacturer or whatever it is that's being subsidised, you've now got more opportunity. And so, yeah, it, to retaliate, so to speak, for other countries subsidising their exports to us is really just to shoot yourself, to, to reject a gift. <laughs> you, you're rejecting a gift, which is not normally a good idea. So the last one here uh, is security, which seems to be quite a prominent one, particularly when it comes around the CHIPS Act. This is this concern mm -hmm. that um, almost 100% of the world's most advanced chips are made in Taiwan. There's a risk Taiwan could be invaded. That could seriously undermine our, our economy, but of course it could undermine the defence industry that needs these, this modern technology to operate. Yeah. I find that a better argument. That, that's the most convincing of the arguments I've heard. It doesn't mean that they have to be produced in any particular country, but within the broadly Western alliance. Um, now, whether it requires subsidies, I'm not sure, um, probably does because uh, at the moment the commercial incentives are resulting in it all being made in Taiwan for whatever reason. I can't say I fully understand why that is, but... Oh, well, I think they've probably built a, a specialty yeah, and yeah. A knowledge and capacity and, and scale. Right. So, you and you might legitimately worry that, that's, that we're vulnerable to them being taken over by the Chinese. I mean, I, I'm not quite as agitated by the Chinese uh, as a kind of geopolitical threat as many people are, but... But I, I can see that reasoning. Um, I think it's important, though, to note that so much of what goes on in these subsidies programs, it'll get that kind of justification, and then it goes way, way, way beyond anything, you know, anything that's really justified by that. Um, so that's a very rare case. Um, that that's yeah. yeah I mean, that that's not that doesn't give any justification for subsidising. Uh, electric car manufacturers or any of these green things or, or, for example, the stuff that people are calling steel production. How is any of that justified on these military uh, or strategic, military strategic grounds? So that would, if that's a decent justification, it only covers a tiny fraction of the things that get subsidised. By the way, just, I, I read this article in the Times by Juliet um, Samuel in favour of subsidies. And she said, you know, that Britain doesn't subsidise things. So I had a little look at what Britain does subsidise, the UK government. And the, conveniently, they provide a spreadsheet. And it's a spreadsheet not of each subsidy given out, but each subsidy programme. So, you know, there's lots of subsidies given out within the programmes. I was quite surprised to discover there are 800 such programmes in the UK. 800. And the things that get subsidised are bizarre. You, no externalities justification, no military strategic one. I mean, for God's sake, opera is subsidised in this country. <laughs> you know, why do we need more opera? I mean, people are free to buy opera. What are the positive externalities of opera? Well, the, the ultimate middle class subsidy, of course, is uh, to the arts yeah. uh, sector. Well, Jamie, it's been a, a fascinating discussion going through some of the, the, the current um, issues when it comes to subsidies as well as the, the economic background. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or to the IEA's YouTube channel. And you can find out more about the IEA's activities by visiting iea.org.uk.